John DeGravio, a, f- a couple of weeks ago, I saw one of what is perhaps one of Newcastle's greatest treasures. It's a most glorious bag of confetti. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Sadly. It's a bit of a shock uh, when you first see it. Yeah. Um, but it's, um, it, for me, it was, well, it was thanks to, to Bronwyn that we knew about this thing. So we knew uh, of its existence, um, this bird would flag, uh, but we'd never seen it until you know, I think late last year. Uh, the conservator and I, Amir, we were asked to go over and check out some drawings at the cathedral. Yeah. And we just got into talking and I just asked them about the Birdwood flag and, and they kindly just took us to the safe and brought out this shoebox with this flag. And then uh, I opened the contents and my heart just sank. The impression I got was very much like... Um, that scene in the time machine where he he's talking to the Eloy, the big movie, and they said, "Come, have you have you books? Yes, we have books." Taking him into the back room, and then just seeing that the books had crumbled to ash. And my initial thing is, "Oh my God!" You know, I've seen this, you know, flag in a beautiful photograph, and this is what we've done. You know, so I came back and sort of in a state of distraught. But I first person I rang was oh, well, I had to try and contact Bronwyn, so I was emailing because you know Bronwyn had been involved in this wonderful sort of examination of all the cathedrals a few years ago and the one thing she never got to see was this thing so me being an Italian and Amir being of Iranian descent we sort of felt sort of odd that you know not even being Anglican we were allowed to see this thing and and a dedicated person of the parish and who's dedicated the time to, to loving every single object in there was not allowed to see it so we tracked her down rang her up and um, told her the news. And then she explained to me wonderfully that, no, it was a part of a ritual, that this is what this flag did that they felt, so I felt much better. And the, there's two sides there's to this bag of confetti, But then it put there. us on a different trajectory of what we did. But, you know, the, um, um, the wonderful uh, generosity that, that Bronwyn showed in just preparing information about the provenance of every single treasure yeah. has increased, again, our deepening of our understanding of what is sitting on that hill. Um, and there are some amazing things sitting up that hill and every, I'm going to drag Bronwyn up that hill with me one day and we'll we'll do some more individual stories about the treasures. Mm. I've just been busting to meet you, Bronwyn Oryx, so thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. This is a part of your, your work and research for uh, your Masters, I think, wasn't it? No, it was actually my honours at university and I was doing honours here in fine arts. Yeah. Um, a late career change, a sort of a 60-plus lady deciding what will she do for the rest of her life and uh, what will I do when I grow up and I thought well I didn't actually paint when I was a child so I'll go and learn about art and so this was an amazing um, revelation to me and I started to do research for a small project in my third year and then decided for my honours year that what I should be doing is looking at all these wonderful items that I saw in the cathedral and never really sat and thought about very much when I was there. And uh, so I started to think about that as a research project about actually cataloguing all of those items, much like a museum would, so that we know who gave it, when it was given, why it was given, and a little bit about the artist who made it. Which seems so obvious, but obviously in our churches and our cathedrals, we have items and ephemera and treasures that are donated or or, you know, what have you. But they're just part of the everyday life yes. of the church or the cathedral. So they're perhaps not seen in that other light. 
That's correct. We have a collection of the Hunter history in our cathedral because the cathedral started as a little church in 1812. It was the place where the first uh, Europeans were buried and it went on to become a stone church which was pulled down in the 1880s. It took another 20 years to get the cathedral open. It was built in about eight stages and everything in there, from the money to build it, right through to every chalice and you know, cloth, everything that was there was given by somebody, usually as a family memorial. And so here's this wonderful collection of family history and also a very good collection of artistic history because people gave the best that they could afford. Mm. Uh, And whether that was the widow's mart or whether that was a, a very grand piece, such as the baptismal font, uh, it was all given and gifted by somebody. And so it's it's really part of our community so much as a place of worship as well. It's, it, that's why I think the cathedral has been such a rock to people for so many years. So essentially, if you think that the building of the Sagrada Familia has been a, a, a long and ongoing labour. It's nothing compared <laughs> to the building of Christchurch Cathedral. So. <laughs> That's correct because it's a very long story and it would take an age to tell it here, but uh, purely accidental. You have to understand that when you start out cataloguing things and, and trying to find out about them, you have an object and you take a photograph and then you have to go away and try and find out all about it. Now, there are thousands of pieces in the cathedral hmm. and so you start out with a, a mishmash of, of photographs, a mishmash of bits of written information you found and it was while I was researching in the archives which the diocese had given me permission to go through that I actually found in the university archives this flag and just took some photographs and thought okay you know what's that all about I wonder where that is and and didn't think much more about it but then a week or two later I came across this book that talked about the Birdwood flag in terms of listing the battles of all the Australian troops in World War One, and it had obviously had been hanging on a string and I realised that it went with that flag. And when I opened that book, I just got goosebumps all over and I thought, oh, this is so important. Why don't we know about this? And then... I went away again and, and, you know, I wasn't really there to research flags. I was there to research the (laughs) fine arts. And so I was only looking at the flag from the perspective it's a piece of fabric and, yeah, fabric is art and therefore someone's handmade this, therefore it it falls onto the edges, if you like, of what I was researching. And um, so then it it came about that... um, I spoke to the dean at the time, Graham Lawrence, and said, oh, the former dean, and said, what's happened to the badges that were on the Gallipoli flag? And he looked at me quizzically and he said, oh, no, 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 you've got it wrong. Um, that's the Gallipoli flag. You mean the Birdwood flag. Because the Gallipoli flag is the big Union Jack that we see. Yep. Absolutely. And even though I'd seen photographs of an Australian flag, it just hadn't in the in the the bottom of my consciousness twigged. And so immediately I was able to say, um, think about that. And I went back and looked at that flag again and thought, we're talking about something different. And I said, well, what happened to it? And he said, well, you know, the history of how flags are supposed to be treated. When they're put into a cathedral, they're hung until they drop. And then the pieces are supposed to be quietly and reverently collected and disposed of. 
And he said, I picked up the pieces because it fell during his early tenure there as dean. And he said, I thought one day someone is going to think this is really, really important, even though he didn't know all of the history of it. Mm. Um, He just thought someone will be looking for this. This will be important for Australia. And he just quietly put those pieces in a box, put it in the bottom at the back of a big old safe they have there, and it was forgotten. And, of course, then the cathedral went through the earthquake and the restoration. All of those things in the cathedral were packed up and taken away and stored. And so the flag was just forgotten about. And it was only purely that I was just doing this research, saw this image of a flag, a lovely 1930s black and white photograph in a cardboard mount, and thought, why has someone gone to the trouble of taking this photograph? And then finding out a little bit more about the Birdwood flag. And then when Johnny rang me and said, we found it, I just absolutely shook and I broke in, into tears. I couldn't believe that it was still there. Bronwyn Oric is our guest on Local Treasures this week here at 12.33 ABC Newcastle with John DeGravio sitting here feeling very, very chuffed and relieved, I think, at the discovery ultimately of this flag. But there's still a long way to go with this story. And indeed, from this point on, there's a long way to go. The Birdwood flag. Birdwood was the British head of the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, wasn't he? So he was our boss of our troops during World War One. Yes, that's correct. See, our troops all served as part of the empire. Hmm. So they didn't serve under an Australian flag. Yes, they had Australian commanders at the lower levels, but the ultimate person they reported to was a British general. And General Birdwood was a very much loved general because unlike most other British generals, he knew his troops and he used to go and visit them in the field and he spent time with them and he was courteous and he respected them and they respected him. So there was a great deal of affection and hence we have streets in Newcastle called Birdwood Street, we have a park called Birdwood Park Hmm. because people wanted to remember him as a great general after the war. He actually came to Newcastle, didn't he? Yes, he did. As part of a a national tour after the war, he was actually mooted to be Australia's Prime Minister, uh, not Prime Minister, Governor Governor General, General. I'm sorry, at the time. And then that didn't occur politically, but he spent six months here because he had a daughter living in Perth and he travelled around to every capital and to major regional centres and the troops came in their thousands again to see him. Now, this flag, the Birdwood flag... Uh, flew over his flew over his headquarters in in um, northern France, southern Belgium, uh, uh, at the Somme, yeah. basically at the Battle of the Somme. Yeah. What images of it have you been able to find? Because determining and, and proving provenance is so hard. Unfortunately, we haven't yet come across any photographs of the flag flying, but what we have is very detailed reports which were printed in the newspaper because when this flag was first made, it was done by public subscription. There was a young lady called Miss Dora Spark from Waratah who was the daughter of William Spark of the firm Spark Helmore that Mm. we know today. And Dora was in her early 20s and her two brothers had gone to war and she decided with a group of friends to start making gifts and um, start to provide comforts to the soldiers in the field. She then heard that the British had present British women had presented a flag, a Union Jack, to the Australian troops in France. And so she said, "Well, clearly this isn't good enough. We should be sending the, our boys an Australian flag." But it wasn't just a matter of sending them the flag. She wrote and got permission for it to be an official flag, and she 
had a public subscription for the flag. And so it was all done absolutely above board in terms of it being an official flag. And it was received by him in a ceremony in the battlegrounds where his headquarters were, and it was hung there. And they had great communications, and after he came back from the war, she'd said to him, this is to be in trust for the Australian troops. When he came back from the war, he telegrammed her before he was coming to Australia and said, I have the flag, what would you like me to do with it? And she said, I want it returned to Newcastle. So it came back here and was stored here until he came when there was an official handing over ceremony. She then kept it for another two years, and I think she was trying to decide where should it go or what should happen. Hmm. And when the dean of the cathedral said we should have a place for families to grieve their loved ones, she made the decision then that this flag should go to the cathedral and it should hang there until it dropped, basically. It would be a reminder every day of the suffering of the Australian troops. It's just the most extraordinary story, isn't it? It's just amazing. Now, if you were thinking about seeing an Australian flag, well, it is, but it's the red ensign, isn't it? Yes, it's got a also it's got a different um, star arrangement because we added a star. Uh, I can't remember the year because I'm not an expert in flags, but mm. we've, we've added a star since that time. Mm. But essentially when you look at it as a black and white image, you see the Australian flag as we know it. But if it was spread out, you would see that it's quite different in, in the arrangement of the stars. And it's red. Mm. It is, however, John de Gravio, as I mentioned right at the start of this conversation, a big bag of confetti. Yes, Yes, it's uh, very, very despairing. Um, there are thousands. But look, I see things in symbolic, in symbolic ways, and in those pieces, I see our country. And you know, um, we've once um, Tony Robinson and the and that program left. We sort of made an arrangement with the dean that the flag will be relocated to the university. Amir will do a, an examination of it. Um, Bronwyn noticed that it, in the photographs, we put everything we know about it right now on that on our university blog. Mm. So, including go, the entire, must go and look. It is into, a... including the entire uh, file that yeah. we have on the Warriors Chapel yeah. that's mm. been scanned by one of our volunteers, Octavia. Thank you very much. And that's on there, so everyone will have as much information uh, because it's it's very much a community effort. I still want uh, this. Reconstruction. If we go down that path of putting it back together again, like a, like a jigsaw, can that actually be done? Can conservators put it back together? Hmm. I don't know. A forty thousand dollar question. Um, I'm not a conservator, but I believe that with a great deal of expertise, and certainly seeing the state of the original Gallipoli flag that was is in the cathedral, hmm. that was able to be restored to a point where it's on public exhibition. Hmm. I'm hoping that we can do something with this. There, there are many great talents in. Uh, conservation work in Australia who are able to lend their expertise to this. Of course, that, none of that comes cheaply and I guess we're going to have to have the public again Public contribute. subscription. Here we go, Newcastle. <laughs> we're going to have a big possible campaign, aren't we? We'll have to have something like that.
But I, I really think that um, the words that Dean Crotty said when the flag was received in the cathedral, he said he would place it during the service on the altar and it would afterwards find a permanent resting place on the walls of the cathedral where it would speak for all time to the citizens of Newcastle and the glorious deeds of the men of the Australian Imperial Force. And to be able to honour that would be just the most wonderful thing, that here we've got something that, while it was intended to drop and be disposed of quietly, there was also this hope that it would be there for a long, long time. And with our modern expertise, perhaps it can be there for another 100 or 200 years, and Mm. that would be a wonderful thing. It will obviously never fly again, John, because it is in many thousands of pieces, but perhaps if conservators are able to put it together like an enormous... No, it has to fly in our hearts. Well, it does, (laughs) and it will after everybody reads your beautiful blog on the Birdwood flag. That Warriors Chapel as well is is really our nation's first war memorial mm-hmm. okay and um it just shows the significance everywhere as i said to to the dean and the vc vice chancellor came with us to have a look at it recently as well i said look no matter where you scratch in this valley you find stories uh, of a modest people that have national if not international ramifications but no one knows about them because we're modest at heart we don't like talking about what we do and that's unfortunate you know um Vera Deacon said to me, I don't like all this fuss that's made about me, you know. And mm. I said to Vera, oh, for God's sake, Vera, I, I listen day in, day out of what every single bastard is up to in the world. Why can't I hear about the good things that people do as well? Yeah. Why must I always hear about what some greedy person is up to and what they've achieved i mean and then she said all right well maybe that's a good thing but she comes from a generation she comes from a generation of modest people that it wasn't it wasn't the done thing to to talk about these things but these things are wonderful things i mean doris spark they're inspiring people the whole story of this is an inspiring story and it, it in time for the centenary of anzac I want to see what can be done. We'll give it a go mm. with what we can do. We'll do our best. We'll have a look at it. Um, we'll contact other institutions and see whether we can get some sort of partnership. Um, and um, then it's up to the Anglican Diocese to decide which direction we go. For sure. Okay. Undoubtedly, there has to be things like grants that can be applied for, particularly with the centenary of Anzac coming up. You would think that there would be a government department somewhere going, oh, my, mm. this is so significant. Bronwyn, try and place that flag in the national picture for me. How significant are those thousands of scraps of fabric? Well, as far as I'm aware, this would be the first time an Australian flag was flown officially. That's my belief. Now, I, you know, I'm yet to be proved wrong, but I believe in, in my research, and it's not absolute and complete, this would be the first time a flag was officially flown where our troops were. So our troops in France, who include my husband's great-grandfather, who didn't come back from that war, went and, you know, saluted that flag perhaps as one of the last things they did when they were on parade before the the headquarters. So mm. that's how significant it is. You know, our troops served in World War One under a British flag, under the Union Jack. And so this is the first time they had officially, many tro- troops had a small Australian flag in their pack. That's known. Many small groups of men had a small Australian flag in their particular 
you know, little hutchy or whatever that they were staying in, in in the ground when they had their um, dugouts and so on. But this would be the first time that we're aware of that there was an Australian flag flown in an official capacity outside a general's headquarters. With the boss. With the boss. And, and a much-respected boss too. Mm. They nicknamed mm. him Verdi, didn't they? Or yeah, was he, was, he was called Verdi. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah... So, and we have to look too at what happened when the troops came home. Those who did come back felt guilt. Mm. You know, I felt devastated when we went to France and stood in that field where we know that my husband's great grandfather died. And we saw where here was a perfectly flat field that went for miles and miles and miles, that there were gun emplacements. And they were just told, get up out of the trench and run toward that barbed wire with your gun. Mm. And, you know, this was the early stages of the battle when uh, before General Monash got involved and they started to turn the tide of war because of his different techniques of fighting the war. But they were still fighting it the way they had fought battles 100 years before. And so it was just slaughter of these men. And you can imagine those who survived came home. And if they came home and they hadn't been gassed with mustard gas or they hadn't had an amputation or they hadn't been wounded, they still felt the guilt, they felt the... Uh, suffering of the families. They wanted to look after the people at home and they just were told by the army, you know, forget it, get on with your lives. And so they tried to build this community which had gone through terrible economic deprivations through the war. And they came back and they had friends' wives with children. They had friends' mothers who were grieving. There was just this terrible malaise over the city. And so the Warriors Chapel was built to give these people who never saw their loved ones again somewhere to have some closure. Bronwyn Oric, it's um, wonderful to meet you. Thank you so much for your time. And I'd love to have you back on Local Treasures to share some more stories with yeah. Newcastle. That'd be an absolute privilege. And John DeGravio, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I remember Carol. when you first told me about finding this flag, you were just about ready to weep, I think. So thank you for sharing it. Thank you.